Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian. Welcome to another Dietitian Connection podcast episode. My name is Marie Ferguson and I'm the Director of Dietitian Connection. It's my pleasure to have Emma Ridley back with us today. Um, Please check out her previous uh, podcast episode. It was actually episode six in the DC Journal Club podcast if you want to learn a little bit more about Emma and her background. Um, But Emma Ridley is a Senior Research Fellow and Lead of the Nutrition Program at the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Research Centre at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, where she's responsible for the strategic development and leadership of the Critical Care Nutrition Research Program. Emma completed her PhD a couple of years ago in 2018, and that was on the clinical and functional consequences of energy provided by nutrition in critically ill adults. And Emma's research interests include understanding the optimum way to determine energy requirements in the critically ill, including the clinical application of indirect calorimetry, as well as the effect of optimal nutrition delivery on short and long-term outcomes in ICU patients. And Emma also continues to practice as a clinical dietitian in the ICU at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. I'd also like to thank Nestle Health Science for supporting this podcast episode. So welcome and thanks for joining us today, Emma. No problem. Thanks for having me. It's it's always nice to have a chat to you and thanks also to Nestle for supporting um, the episode. We have been chatting a lot recently. We are in the still in the middle of the global COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so I just wanted to check in with you and see how things are going for you. Um, yeah, thanks. Things have uh, settled a little bit, which is really nice. It's been really busy, as you know, and we had quite a few pieces of work going at the same time. So all of that has slightly settled. And because we found ourselves in a very fortunate position here uh, where things are relatively under control at the moment, it has settled, which is really nice. And it's a luxury that I know not everyone has, mm. um, but it's it's a little bit more manageable at the moment. So going okay and a little bit sick of being at home and isolated isolated as I'm sure many people are Mm. um, and struggling with the normal day-to-day life things but Mm -hmm. work has settled which is nice. And our thoughts go out to all of our dietitian listeners particularly those on the front line across the world Um, and we're thinking of you at the moment and for everyone else who as you mentioned Emma is just struggling with um, day-to-day life that's so different for all of us at the moment so let you know that we're thinking of all of you. Um, Today we're going to be talking about the post-ICU period Um, so we're going to spend the first half of the podcast probably on that topic and then we'll um, just touch again on the COVID-19 situation towards the end. So thanks again for joining us, Emma. I thought we could just start with how long you've been working as an ICU dietitian. Um, so I've been a dietitian for 15 years, which seems really strange. I don't feel like I've been doing it that long, but I guess that sounds like a long time. Um, and I've been in ICU for 12 of those years and I've been doing research in the area for 10 um, so it's quite a while now and it's a good amount of time to really, I guess, make a, a mark and work out where you actually enjoy working and what aspects and things and also start to really get um, a track record, I guess, and develop some ideas in uh, research so that we can really start investigating some ideas in a solid way. Mm-hmm. 
And what are you currently seeing? Like what are the nutritional consequences of patients being in ICU? Uh, so, yeah, this is a great question. And I think the post-ICU period um, and my interest in that area has sort of, it, it wasn't an accident, but I guess we um, we did a study as part of my PhD, which is a supplemental PN study. And as a dietitian, it really started to interest me about the fact that we did so well in ICU, but then we went to the ward and we maybe didn't do as well and not many people were looking at that. So as part of my PhD program, we added in a post-ICU study and it was kind of an afterthought, not not that it wasn't important, but just a small piece of work and uh, it was just something that I was interested in from a dietitian perspective. But it has turned out to be quite, uh, I guess, timely because in the meantime, other people have started thinking about this and it meant we had some data at a very crucial time. So there, when I talk about and what I'm talking about today, uh, there is not a lot of evidence at the moment and data and we're still starting to learn about the consequences and things. So just keep that in mind when you're listening. But um, I guess I'll talk about nutrition consequences, but consequences that impact nutrition as well, because it's not all just nutrition consequences. But there's the obvious things like weight loss, which is predominantly muscle. And I think that's obvious because people notice it, obviously, uh, both clinicians and patients. Uh, but the things that are becoming a little bit more understood in terms of being an issue, we don't really understand how they happen and what we need to do about them yet. But things like the loss of day and night routine causes a huge problem for ICU patients for many reasons, sleep, delirium, um, recovery, but that also greatly impacts appetite. And it's coupled with the loss of a regular eating pattern as well. So these patients don't have regular uh, eating and drinking schedule because we feed them continuously and sometimes um, intravenously so they don't get gastric nutrition. And that really mucks up their satiety, their appetite, and, and that regular schedule as well. Um, you also, along with muscle loss and just being prolonged and unwell, you get decreases in function. And we're starting to learn that this can, it's not only, I guess, physically it changes people, but there's also some evidence around the impact that this has on people's bodies in terms of how they feel about their body. So they feel their body's letting them down. They feel frustrated because they've been an independent person and now they're sick. And that can lead to depression uh, and, you know, feeling helpless, worthless, those sorts of things. And so that can impact appetite as well. And then there's also the obvious functional problems uh, with strength, so the inability to feed oneself or swallow properly and things like that. So I don't think we really focus on all those sort of non-nutrition things that have such a strong impact on nutrition. No, yeah. no, I don't think we do. And I think even for me, I, it's a learning process. I mean, a lot of these things I haven't really thought about in great detail in terms of impacting nutrition, but the more work that comes out, the more you think, well, of course that makes sense. Like it's obvious, but I don't think we've really focused on it. And I don't think we've really understood how much this is impacting our patients. So it sounds like you're still sort of in the early stages of looking at this particular period of time and, and the the items that you're talking about affecting nutrition post-ICU, but what do you think we need to keep in mind from what you know now in that post-ICU period? Yeah, generally I would say that the the sicker the patient has been and the longer they've been in ICU, um, the greater the issues will be. So I guess that's just an initial kind of clue um, that you might have more problems. Um, 
in saying that, it's very individual and I know we all can probably think of patients that we, we thought were going to do really badly and they do exceptionally well and they just kind of wake up and eat and you think, oh, that's amazing. Um, so it is independent and it, it does depend on the type of injury or illness that the patients had. For example, patients with head injuries, sometimes they, um, if they have frontal lobe problems, they lose their inhibitions and they'll just eat anything that is in front of them, in, including food that's not theirs. Um, and Or it can go the other way. They might actually start thinking that we're trying to poison them, for example, or there's something bad going on for them. Um, and that can happen with delirium as well in terms of confusion and stuff. So it does depend on how that patient is. Um, but in general, these patients um, are going to have problems with appetite, satiety, and probably taste changes for the reasons I outlined prior. There's also potential issues with nausea and vomiting, and that could just be an illness-related thing, but it could also be medication-related, can be day-night routine-related, um, could just be a recovery thing as well. Uh, most of the time, uh, the improvements will probably be gradual and slow, and I think that has to be appreciated as well because it can sort of be thought, oh, let's just get the patient eating. But that doesn't happen. You know, if they've been in ICU for a long time, they have no routine, they've lost their appetite, they haven't had normal meals. You know, it's going to take a week or so for us to really work that up um, mm. in terms of having more structure. Um, there's the mental health issues that we've talked about in terms of how the patients um, feel. And from the data that we have, we certainly know that in the post-ICU period, it can be very poor intake for patients that are eating oral nutrition alone with no oral supplements. And some of the data that we have from um, that original study I talked about showed that adequacy was really um, around 37% for patients who were just having oral nutrition food with no supplements. So really quite bad. Uh, and if we added in supplements, it improved, and the patients that had enteral plus oral did the best, actually, in terms of the cohort that we looked at. So there's certainly many considerations, and you really have to have a critical eye as to what is the problem. Yeah, wow. And are you seeing, as a result, then um, the majority of patients experiencing weight loss and or malnutrition? I think so. I think mm -hmm. that's a big problem. Mm -hmm. I can't say I've looked at that specifically, mm -hmm. but anecdotally, uh, I do think that this post-ICU period, coupled with the issues that I've talked about, means that the patients are often, as you say, they're either malnourished when they leave or at high risk or become malnourished in that period. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like nutrition intake is reducing for the, for the majority of patients, apart from those ones that you described with delirium, perhaps. What do yep. you think are some of the barriers to that reduced nutrition intake in the post-ICU period? And you've talked about some of them, obviously. The, the schedule sounds like yeah. a really big one. Yeah. I think there's um, several things that contribute and these all need to be addressed in terms of us understanding why this is happening and also improving it for our patients. So um, we can divide it into to patient factors, which are the things we've really talked about, so appetite and taste changes, gastrointestinal problems, swallow and function problems, and those psychosocial issues around um, mental health and body image and things. But the other um, things that are really important that we haven't touched on uh, yet are the clinician factors. So there's several of these. So that might be um, the lack of handover. Um, and a lot of this work has been well described by Judith Merriweather and she's in the UK and she's got a couple of really beautiful papers that are qualitative that really describe these problems for the patients in the patient's words. Um, so if you're interested in this, I would really encourage you to look that up. 
um, and I can probably provide those papers to you as well. Um, so in terms of um, those factors, there's a lack of handover between dietitians actually from ICU to the ward and that is a major problem. And then I think there's potential skill problems. So sometimes these patients come out of the ICU and they're still quite sick and they've got major problems but who takes them on may not be a person that uh, understands those issues or is able to manage them well. And so we have to be able to support uh, our colleagues and give them advice in that. And then the third part of it is that um, nursing and medical handover often doesn't include much mention of any nutrition issues, and that's a problem as well and comes back to probably, you know, the wider and huge issues of nutrition education for nurses and doctors. Um, but I think as dietitians, we really need to work with our teams to say, hey, the, this is a major problem in the patient's stay and you need to put that in your notes so that your medical colleagues understand that. The second part of this is that tubes are just removed. Basically, as soon as the patient wakes up in the ICU, uh, it's a culture of taking tubes out where people think um, we're moving the patient forward and this is a good thing to do for the patient. And I can understand that thinking and sometimes it is good for the patient, but in other times it's not because it puts them back considerably with their nutrition intake and they're not able to eat. Um, it's that typical approach of just let them eat. Um, they'll be able to eat if you take the tube out, but they can't for the issues that we've previously mm -hmm. talked about. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that is a, a major factor. And then nursing care, um, they have so many things to look at that sometimes nutrition is just another thing on the task list and it's not always um, prioritised. So that is something that we have to work with with our nurses. And the last factors are the system factors, which we have touched on a little bit um, in terms of the food portions might be too large, the food might not be acceptable, it might not be culturally appropriate, the choice might not be okay, um, the meal times are set and um, the patient is not able to have those meals at that time. So there's a suite of things that really are impacting on this. Mm. Oh my gosh, I just, that is a long laundry list of barriers that it no, is, no yeah, wonder that people are struggling. Yeah. I think the piece that we often forget is the patient perspective. And when I was at the hospital, we, we also did some work around um, looking at what patients actually, you know, what are, what's it look like from their perspective? Can you share any things that are common um, feedback from patients during this time? Yeah, I, look, I think if you ask the patients, and this is actually a piece of work that we'd like to do soon, we haven't done it yet, but from what I know anecdotally, if you ask the patients, it's mostly about the food. So, mm. um, and I think maybe it's definitely about the food in terms of them not liking the choice or it's cold or it's hot or whatever it is. Um, but I do think that perhaps some of that is a symptom of the larger issues in terms of they don't have any appetite, they don't feel well, mm -hmm. they feel nauseous, that sort of stuff. So mm -hmm. um, it comes down to them not liking the food, but actually there's other issues. So uh, I think the system factors tend to be a big issue for the patients once they can really articulate that, whereas the other barriers are more sort of the early things that as clinicians we can probably improve. Mm. And do you have any thoughts on how you even begin to tackle those system barriers? Um, look, it's hard. I think it has to be an individual approach because the issues are going to be different in each hospital. So I think each hospital has to think about what problems they might have and probably do a little bit of assessment as to what the things are that are most important to them and tackle it that way rather than just a blanket approach because that's probably not going to work. 
So moving on to what you recommend that we can, that's within our control, what we can do during this time, what sorts of nutrition support do you recommend or what do you find is most commonly useful in the post-ICU period? Yeah, so in the data that we have, um, oral nutrition was the most common mode of nutrition. So I think that is mostly what we're going to be dealing with in this period and that makes sense because the patients are moving out and hopefully on their way home at some point. So I think keeping that in mind that um, oral nutrition support should be mandatory. So the patients should have high energy, high, t- high protein diets that are appropriate in terms of texture for whatever they need um, with high energy, high protein fluids that are also appropriate for their level of fluids they require. Um, and that should be the routine, not the exception. And I think um, it's clear that patients that don't have that are not going to do well. And and that doesn't mean that we just do that and don't come back. I'm saying we should start them on that and then we should come back and see how they're going and, of course, tailor it. But I think in the first instance, we should just assume that they're not going to do very well and then have them uh, on those um, standard regimes. But I also caution, you know, I've seen several times, you know, just prescribe them five or six supplements that they're not going to drink at all. Um, and so we also have to be individualized in terms of actually really working with the patient to see what they would like to have and what they can have as well. And you mentioned that the tubes are often pulled out, you know, pretty quickly. What are your thoughts around sort of continuing tube yeah, feeding? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things that we can do. Um, And I really think that comes into education. So what we really have to do is change that culture of de-plumbing and really talk to our doctors and our nurses about why these patients can't eat. And I've heard this millions of times, just, you know, just get them to eat. They'll be fine. They just need the tube out. Just let them eat. Um, And we have to talk to our doctors about appetite, about the day-night routine and how that impacts appetite, about how they cannot just eat and how, you know, on the water round when you say, would you like to eat? And they say, yes, I'd like to eat. That means they'd like one or two spoons and then they'll be full. That doesn't mean I'm going to have a whole meal. That just means I'd like to try something, please. And that's fantastic, but that's not going to support them. Um, and, and changing that narrative that taking this tube out is a good thing for them. It, it might be a good thing in some patients, but in other patients it's not and having that conversation. And I, I always like to put it in their language. So if they needed a central line, the, the doctors would put one in or they would keep it in if they needed to do that because that is seen as a core part of their therapy in terms of being able to provide treatment. But mm. it, we don't think about feeding tubes as the same thing. No. So it has to sort of change. And at what point do you consider that it would be you would think about removing the tube feed? Is there a certain point of that they're having, you know, X percentage of food per day or what's the yeah, sort well, of? I think that's individual. Mm. I would always like to see at least 75%, but that's sometimes hard to to have. Um I, often what will happen is we might negotiate that they we stop feeding but you leave the tube in just to see what happens for 24 hours, for example. And so at least then you've still got access to the tube if you need it mm-hmm. um, and we can see how the, the patient progresses from that point of view. Um, you know, just I guess having that conversation and even if it can stay in for another 24 hours while you just try and sort out how you're going to meet their requirements orally, I think that's sometimes helpful. Um, and so it's just around that education, but definitely trying to keep 
things in and then also talking to the patient as well. I think we have to change our narrative with the patients um, and we need to get our medical and nursing staff to help us with that in terms of the way they talk about it. Um, you know, it's not an optional thing. This is something that's really helping with your recovery and we have to just keep it going for as long as possible. Um, and I often frame it to patients like, you know, you're trying so hard to eat and I can see it's really hard for you and I'm sure you're really sick of it and you're feeling sick and you're tired. And so if we keep this tube in, we can take the pressure off and you can just eat for pleasure and you mm. can eat what you would like. Yeah. And when you're feeling better, we can wind that back and we'll take it out. But right now it's probably not the right time. Mm. And in this um, post-ICU period where you're close to thinking about removing it, would you still be doing continuous feeding or would that be bolus feeding or what does that look like at that point in time? Yeah, definitely. Um, if the patient's really failing, I would just keep it continuous. And really there's no evidence to show that continuous feeding impacts on appetite in post-critically ill and healthy patients. Um, and so I would definitely just keep it continuous if they were really failing. Um, and then as they're improving, I would wind, start winding it back. So less time during the day and then perhaps an overnight regime if they were safe to do that. Uh, and uh, wind it back and then maybe have one or two days where we have nothing and then take it out. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Anything else you want to share in that post-ICU period before we move to a few questions around COVID-19? I don't think so. The, mm -hmm. only, the last thing I would just say is we also have to get better at early escalation if the patient's failing, and I think that is a big thing that we get wrong as well at the moment uh, where the tube will be taken out in ICU because that's what happens. The patient then doesn't do well and they just continue to fail. Um, and so we really also have to improve our conversations around, you know, this patient is failing. We've tried this many supplements. We've tried high energy, high protein. They just can't eat. These are the reasons. Mm. And uh, really you know, advocate and get the patient on the side as well to say, look, you know, you're not going to be able to go home. You're going to be weak when you get home. We want to keep you strong and these things can help. Can help. Mm. I almost need a checklist. I can't remember what it's called from a medical point of view, but when patients are failing, like if there's these triggers, then you, you know, yeah. need to take action. We kind of need that from a nutrition perspective as well. Yeah, and I think from all of the cases that you look at where patients have really failed, one of the greatest things that uh, clinicians will say is that they wish they'd acted earlier. earlier yeah. And so I just think that we just need to have that philosophy that we should act earlier. And also things take longer than you think. So you'll start this conversation and in three days' time you might get the tube. So you should start that conversation as early as possible because you're going to be three more days down the track by the time it happens potentially. Mm. Well, there's a lot to unpack in that. So hopefully um, our dietitian listeners have a, quite a few ideas that they can go away with and um, implement some strategies in their post-ICU wards. So thanks for sharing that with us, Emma. That's okay. Hopefully we'll have some more answers for them as we start to do a bit more research in this area too. Yeah, that'd be great. We look forward to that. So now turning to COVID-19 just for the last few minutes of today's podcast, I know that you've seen a few patients personally yourself with COVID-19. Can you just tell us a little bit about your experience? 
Yeah, so um, I have seen them and I say that in inverted commas because I've done it remotely. I haven't actually been into any bed spaces because I'm working remotely at the moment but uh, keeping a close eye on our patients through our system. Um, and definitely, I mean, what we're seeing at the Alfred is a very sick group of patients and several of those that we have are still in ICU and they're up to three or four weeks um, of ICU. So, uh, I guess just take that as our experience as well. It's not everyone's experience in Australia, certainly overseas it is, but um, we have the sickest patients and all of the patients at the moment in ICU in Victoria because we've had the sickest ones. So um, we're certainly seeing patients that have ventilated for a long time. Uh, they have been prone, so we're seeing that. We're seeing increased gastrointestinal intolerance prior to proning but in proning which is when the patients lay on their stomach for ventilation mm. um, we are seeing strange metabolic things like high blood glucose levels but you know higher than you'd normally anticipate um, and I guess we're you know that I, I don't really understand what's happening there but it's obviously some sort of inflammatory process and I'm sure someone will publish something on that at some point uh, we've been using supplemental PN in this group and so that um, is not something that everyone does but our unit tends to use quite a bit of it um, rather than nasogejunal feeding just due to our access to nasogejunal feeding so because of the intolerance we have had to use PN to top these patients up because their adequacy has been very poor um, so they're certainly an unusual group and and I agree with what everyone from overseas has been saying it's it's a different scenario for sure and are you seeing a mix of younger as well as elderly patients or what's the kind of mix been um, actually the patients that we have at the moment they're not all elderly um, mm. some of them have been and unfortunately they have died um, and the, these patients that are kind of stuck at the moment are are not that old, you know, sort of 50s to 60s, which mm -hmm. some of them have comorbidities, so maybe that's not surprising they've been quite sick, but others of them um, do not and are just quite sick, so that is quite alarming as well. Mm. It's just heartbreaking. So, yeah. Um, any other difference that you're observing in, in your COVID-19 patients compared to people that you'd normally see in ICU? Um, not really a difference, but I just would say that they tend to be, they're, they're quite, uh, they're wasting quite a lot and they have mm. quite a lot of um, critical illness myopathy and that might just be to do, to do with the length of time that they're in ICU and they've probably been sick for a little bit before they come to us. It may just be that or because we think there's something quite inflammatory about mm. this process, it probably is a COVID process as well. But that just makes me really concerned for the long-term recovery of these patients. And mm. I just think internationally, because of the numbers that they have seen, we just haven't even really started to understand how long this is going to take for patients to recover mm. from. And I think the nutrition issues that I've spoken about are relevant here and that you know, people on the ward that are seeing these patients who have been very sick are going to be seeing all of the things we've just talked about. Mm. I think it's probably a combination of both, isn't it? And it's obviously if you've got that muscle wasting happening, that's obviously affecting the respiratory muscles as well, which doesn't 
help them, Absolutely. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 And, I mean, this is occurring in patients where we feel we've um, done pretty well with their feeding. We're, we're seeing mm. adequacies of a, around 85% or more um, in these patients and we're being really careful to try and watch that. And it's possible that we've got the target wrong because we haven't measured their requirements because that's a risk for aerosol exposure. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, where as a as a unit that's fairly experienced at measuring, we're also pretty good at estimating because we see a lot of comparisons to measurements. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I don't know that we've got it hugely wrong, but in saying that, you know, we don't know much about what their requirements are. But mm-hmm. um, we have been feeding them fairly well, and we're still seeing this, which just speaks to, I guess, the the inflammatory process and the fact that even if they're probably having some rehabilitation plus nutrition, we may not be able to get on top of that process. Yeah. Wow. It's just, I'm really looking forward to the research that's going to come, you know, in the coming months to help us understand more about what's happening with these patients. Yeah, I agree. So I know in your situation, talking to you offline, that many of your patients unfortunately aren't making it through or they're still in ICU. So there's not really many that are actually being discharged to home. So what would you actually recommend if you were able to put together a plan for someone um, post-ICU? Yeah, so I would, um, I mean, I'm sure we will see some patients leave ICU and then the hospital, I think, um, for us in Australia, because we're coping in terms of workload, uh, it may not be that the patients are kind of pushed out of the door, but it does depend how we're going now that we're starting to release restrictions. If we get another wave of this, then we may be seeing patients going home very early because we have to move people through. So I think that's probably something really to consider that these patients, when they leave, may be still quite sick and they also may be right in in the acute issues of some of the things we've talked about. So you're going to be sending them home with not much appetite, with, you know, no eating routine with fatigue with functional issues which means they can't prepare food so all of those things have to be considered um, and I think you should talk to whoever is taking them on whether that be a rehab place or if they're going home to look for some of the specific issues that you might be concerned about Um, obviously we would like to have these patients followed up somehow in the community and if that's possible I would certainly facilitate that and if it's not I think having a letter which could even be a pro forma that you just fill in the specific nutrition issues in terms of the post ICU concerns you have um, that goes to the GP would be helpful so that they can then look for these issues when they follow that patient up Um, and finally I would just give the patients that your contact details and even if you can't see them I guess if you get a call from a patient saying I'm struggling at least then you can go back to that GP and say look we really need to try and manage this together Um, and I I know that's going to be a tricky situation for people to try and find um, those processes but I think really if you have possibility to discharge them with some supplements do that if you have a possibility to link them into follow-up do that and at the very least just let their gp know and give their your contact details so that if they're really failing at least you could try and facilitate something for them and what sort of nutrition support would you be recommending to sort of prevent readmissions for example 
I think um, that's going to be very individual, but I, I would see that there's nothing wrong with the, the good old high-energy, high-protein education in this setting with some um, recommendations for supplements um, as a basis, and then um, it would need to be tailored depending on the specific issues that um, the patient has. Uh, but I think probably giving them something rather than nothing is important, um, or at least giving them the information as to how they can find something if they run into trouble. And potentially still even on tube feeding if they're not going well. Yeah, yeah. possibly. Mm-hmm. Look, I think I mean I think that would probably only happen if we really got ourselves into a massive pickle. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those patients at this time would probably stay in hospital, uh, um, or be at rehab or some, something like that. But I guess mm-hmm. that is a possibility if um, we get ourselves into a, a bad situation. Mm-hmm. And where can people go to learn more about? sort of nutrition recommendations in the post-ICU period? Can you think of any resources? I've got a a couple of papers I could recommend and I was thinking maybe I'll send them to you to be linked in. Yeah, Yeah. that'd be great. Yeah. And then from a COVID-19 perspective, I know you've done some guidelines that are on the OSPEN website and we also have them available under the COVID-19 Resource Hub on Dietitian Connections website. So that's another Yeah, good- I'll just add as well, the UK have actually, um, since we did our uh, webinar and also the um, Australian guidelines, they have put out quite a bit more guidance around sort of this later COVID management period and also the moving to home sort of period. So I'd Mm. just also recommend people check that out as well if they're seeing these patients in that phase. Terrific. Well, thank you again, Emma. I just continue to admire you. The wealth of knowledge that you have at the tip of your fingers is, is stunning. So thank you for sharing your experience and expertise with us particularly at this time we're so grateful and um, we wish you and all of your colleagues around the world the very best in the coming weeks and months thank you it's my pleasure and thanks again to nestle health science for supporting this podcast episode Um, we wouldn't be able to bring this to you without their support so thank you very much and thanks to everyone for listening and we look forward to seeing you on a future dietitian connection podcast Thanks for listening, wherever in the world you're tuning in from. If you did enjoy this podcast episode, we would really appreciate if you could leave a review for us. Leaving a review actually means the podcast gets to more dietitians and it can only elevate our profession if we work together. So please hit that review button. Tell us and other people what you thought about this episode. Another way to share your learnings from this episode and keep the conversation going is to take a screenshot of your phone screen, add your message and share it on social media. Don't forget to tag us at Dietitian Connection so we can share it with our following of over 30,000. Tell us what you learned and what future topics you'd like us to cover. If you'd like to access the show notes, they are available at dietitianconnection.com forward slash podcasts. Dietitian Connection is a global community and we offer free professional development, job opportunities, resources and connections. We're committed to bringing dietitians together so we can create more impact and elevate our profession. And you can easily become a Dietitian Connection member for free by signing up at dietitianconnection.com.